And they were really good questions. Really good ones. Best, the best set of questions I've ever received for a night like this. So I, I wish I could get to them all, but we'd be here till 11, so I can't. Um, but I'm going to get to the ones I could. I took, took them kind of in order that they came to me, pretty much. But next week, and if it goes on another week after that, I'll, I'll, I'll get to your questions, okay? I haven't seen one yet that I can't do, that I, that I feel like I better not go there. Hey, you're in a service where I answered the question, can a Christian smoke pot? If I went there, there's nowhere I won't go, all right? I'm serious. And you know, hey, if it's a legit if if it's a question to you, it's valuable. And it's worth answering, all right? Let's pray. Father, we just thank you tonight for your blessing, for your touch, for your ministry. That Lord, even though we're taking questions, they all have to do with your word, and I pray that your word will come alive tonight. And Lord, some of the cobwebs that are in our minds, questions unanswered, things that have bothered us, or things that the culture has thrown at us and we didn't have an answer for. Uh, Lord, uh, help us to have deeper understanding after tonight. Give it, make us people of wisdom who can, who can be instant in season and out of season and answer some of the tougher questions. Now breathe a prayer with me, dear church. Say, Lord, tonight, expand my understanding of the word of God and make me wise in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, God heard that prayer. Speaking of prayer, Sunday night, y'all, was dynamite. Now, I know a lot of you weren't here, couldn't make it for whatever reason, but we had a hundred people here praying Sunday night. And it took off. It was rich. So we're going to do it at least once a month. Going to get together and pray. Um, the Holy Spirit was here so richly. Now, I want to tell you that prayer is the engine of the church. Do you understand that? You say, no, Pastor Jeff, the word is the engine of the church. Well, I can tell you as a preacher, try preaching with no prayer and then try preaching after great prayer. And I want to tell you, prayer is the engine of good preaching. Prayer is the engine of the church. So we're going to be doing it more and more. Um, and it was so good to see all the intercessors here and a hundred people. And I'm telling you, it was a hundred people crying out to God. It was great. Now, um, I'm just going to just, I think I have five questions tonight, maybe six. And if I end a little bit early, then you get to go home early. Wasn't that, was that a storm last night or what? How many of you were awakened by that storm? Can I tell you, I didn't even know that it happened. That's how tired I was. I woke up and I heard all these news, oh, you know, and I got a call that our own building had no power. And I said, how come? And they said, how come? There was this incredible storm last night, 80 mile an hour winds. And I said, no way. And I slept through the whole thing, the whole thing. He giveth his beloved sleep. Amen. Okay. Now here's the first question. And let's just deal with as many as we can. When Jesus says in Luke 24, 39, look at my hands, look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a what, everybody? Because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do, end quote. Now, the question that I got was this. There are people in my family that say they have ghosts living within their homes. Explain to me what a ghost is. Okay. That's a very good question because you know, the, the disciples believe in ghosts. Remember when they saw Jesus coming to them on the water? They said, it's a ghost. So what is the real Bible truth about ghosts? Uh, oddly enough, I was talking to a young man last night on this same topic before I even really answered this on paper and got ready to answer it tonight. Same topic about ghosts and spirit beings. People are wondering about that. You know why? Because the occult has so infiltrated our culture that we're hearing about haunted houses and haunted this and haunted that and people being visited by spirits of, of uh, 
loved ones who have died and so on and so forth. So I said to this person and I say to you, the Bible is our authority and none other. The Bible is our authority. Not some mystic book, not an occult book. And are you ready? Not your own experiences. Your, your authority and my authority is the Bible, the word of God. And the word of God has a lot to say about it. So here you go. The answer, the term ghost is translated from the Greek word pneuma, which means spirit or breath. So yes, there are spirit beings. We all know that angels and there's demons and, and then subcategories, cherubim, seraphim, Satan himself, uh, the hierarchy of demon beings, the spiritual darkness in heaven and spiritual wickedness in heavenly places, rulers of the darkness of the world, principalities, powers. Those are four hierarchical levels of demon beings. Okay. But if by ghost you mean spirits of people who have died, the answer is no. The Bible negates the idea that the spirits of deceased human beings can remain on earth and haunt the living. What does the Bible say? The Bible says in Hebrews 9.27, man is destined to die once, not twice, not thrice, not four times. You're not coming back as something else. There's no reincarnation. When you die, that's it. And whatever you did with your life and whatever you did with God, whatever you did with Christ, it's it. You, you have no more chance once your ticker has stopped ticking. You have no more chance to get right with God. That's it. It's over. So if you responded to Christ, you're saved. If you didn't respond to Christ, you die lost. You can't come back. And let me just break another myth. There's no purgatory. So, yes, there is, Pastor Jeff. I was raised learning about purgatory. You're raised in a Catholic church that taught purgatory, but purgatory is not in the Bible. It's not there. You don't go to some place of penance where you sort of pay off your sins, and then once the the sins are paid off, you get out of purgatory and you're able to go on to, to heaven. That's not the way that it works. There's no purgatory. It says man is destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. That is what happens to a person's soul or spirit after death, either heaven if you're a Christian or the judgment if you're not. There's no in-between. There's no possibility of remaining on earth in spirit form as a ghost. Now, I've shared this with you before, but let me clarify because there remains confusion about this in the body of Christ. When somebody lost... This came up last night with this young man as well. When somebody lost dies, where do they go? They go immediately to Hades. The Greek, Hades, Hades, Hades. Hades is like a spiritual waiting room. It is a place of torment. We know something about it because of Jesus' parable about the rich man that died, and he woke up in Hades. His servant who had had nothing on this earth, who the dogs licked his wounds, who, who ate the scraps off the rich man's table, that man went into Abraham's bosom. But the rich man who died lost went into Hades. Now follow me carefully. Hades is where every single soul of every person who has ever died without God is right now. They're there right now. All right? Well, what are they waiting on? They're waiting on the great white throne judgment spoken of in Revelations around the 20th chapter where it says when it comes time for the great white throne judgment, death and Hades will spew out the dead that are in them. That means they will spew out their souls to the presence of God at the judgment, answer for their sins, and then they will be cast into what we normally equate with hell, and that is the lake of fire. Now, the lake of fire is there somewhere right now. It exists right now. But nothing, nothing is in the lake of fire yet. Nothing. Not one person is in the lake of fire yet. The first two people who will be sent to the lake of fire are Antichrist and the beast, 
the false prophet. Antichrist and his false prophet are the first two human beings to be cast into hell, according to the book of Revelations. And Satan will be cast into the lake of fire. All of his demons will be cast into the lake of fire. But nothing is there now. So if you reject Christ and you die in your sins, you immediately go to Hades. And there, Jesus described the rich man as begging for water to touch his tongue because he was dying of thirst and there was no water. He was able to look across a great chasm and see his former servant in Abraham's bosom. Now, don't lose me now because I got to make it a little more involved. Listen carefully. Before Jesus rose from the dead, Hades was comprised of two compartments. The first one is where the lost went, like the rich man. The other part of Hades is where Abraham was, and Isaac, and Jacob, and the prophets, and every person who died in faith before Christ came. They were in the good part of Hades. And Jesus called it Abraham's bosom. When the rich man looked across the great chasm that Jesus said nobody could navigate across, nobody could go across to the other side once you were in the bad part of Hades. This rich man saw his servant in Abraham's bosom. And so there he was able to see the good part of Hades, but he couldn't get there. He could not go there. He could not reach it. He was left where he was. Now, when Jesus rose from the dead, the good part of Hades was emptied out. Are you with me? The good part of Hades was emptied out. We read in the New Testament that when Jesus rose from the dead, that the graves were opened and many resurrected bodies of the righteous were wandering around Jerusalem saying hello to folks. Because those that were in the good part of Hades, it says in Hebrews, these all, all the Old Testament saints, it says these all died in faith, not having received the promises. What's the promise? Heaven. With Jesus Christ in glory. No, they were just in the good part of Hades. All right? But the Bible says these all died in faith, not having received the promises. God having provided some better thing for us that they without us could not be made perfect. That means that the new covenant, once the new covenant was ratified by the blood of Jesus and he rose from the dead, which, which took care of the devil and death hell on the grave, then those who had died in faith without receiving the promise were delivered from Hades. And it says Jesus took them in a glorious victory train into heaven. All right. How many of you can say, I got it? How many of you can say, I don't, I didn't get that. If you didn't get that, everybody got that? It's really not complicated once you get it down. So now nobody goes into the good part of Hades because now we're in the new covenant ratified by the blood of Jesus. You don't have to go to Hades. As soon as you die as a believer, straight into the presence of the Lord. That's it. The Bible says, say it with me, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Say with me, there's no soul sleep. Oh, no, no. You don't go off into some, some stupor for centuries where you're not aware of anything if you die in Christ. No, absent from the body, present with the Lord. That's why Paul said, I would much rather go be with Jesus than have to mess with you folks. Now, that's the revised Wickwire version, but that's what he was saying. I'd, I'd so much rather go be with Jesus than have to mess with the churches and all this stuff and all the problems of people, but for your sakes, I will stick around. Well, if Paul thought he was just going to go into some soul sleep for 21 centuries, he would not have been eager to go, but he knew as soon as my body dies, I'm with him. Amen? Can we give the Lord a hand of praise for that? Amen. 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 So... No, there's no such thing as a ghost. <laughs> That's a long way around it, isn't it? But there's no such thing as a ghost, that is, of the spirit of a departed loved one wandering around unsatisfied until some, something happens that somehow vindicates them or whatever. You know how the ghost stories go. 
and they're not haunting you. And if there is something haunting a house, it's not a ghost, it's a demon. You ought to check that house for occultic artifacts, books, Ouija boards, things that draw occultic, demonic presence. Because believe me, they do. They do. If you used to be in the occult and you've gotten saved, but you haven't cleaned out your bookshelves and all those things, you better get them out of your house. You'll sleep better because they do bring an oppression. They do. Okay? Next question. Who are the two witnesses in Revelations 11, 3 to 12? This person goes on. They were dead for three days and the people were glad. And did the rapture of the church already happen at this point when the two witnesses are ministering? Okay, to answer that, Let's read about the two witnesses found in the book of Revelation, and I'll try to bring you up to speed on them a little bit. God says, I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap, and they will prophesy during those 1260 days. That's three and a half years. They will prophesy the first three and a half years, I'm telling you now, of the tribulation period. Verse 5. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. How many of you wish you could do that? Every once in a while. <laughs> Be a whole lot of steaming ash piles, right? All right, now, let's, let's go on. Now, look what happens. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. Now, this is the book of Revelation, almost in the middle of the book, well, about in the dead center of the book of Revelation. And it's telling us about two men who are going to appear and are going to testify to a Christ-rejecting, godless, God-forsaken, lost demonized culture. They're going to prophesy to them, preach the word to them, call them to repentance, call out their sin. Two men. And the Bible says that after three and a half years of their ministry, they will be killed, they will be martyred by the Antichrist and the beast, which is his false prophet. Now, Let's pick it up in verse 11. It says, then, but after three and a half days after they have been killed, and the Bible says that the whole world is watching their dying body or watching their dead bodies lying in the street. Catch this now. Now, I ask you, please think with me for a minute. Here's John. He's in the first century. There's no TV. There's no mass media. There's no nothing. But he prophesies that somehow, some way, someday, there's going to be two men, and the whole world will be able to stare at their dead bodies at the same time. Well, how could that be? John foresaw mass media. ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, MSNBC, they'll all be panned on these bodies. And looking at them, and the Bible says they're partying because now they're dead. But look what happens. God, who knows how to ruin a good party, It says, after three and a half days, God breathed life into them. Now, they're dead three and a half days. But after three and a half days, God breathed life into them, and they stood up. Now, terror, and you better know terror, struck all who were staring at them, and the all is the whole world. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. Now, now watch this. Now, you can imagine, I can imagine, ABC, CBS, NBC, CNN, MSNBC, trying to explain that away. The way they do. You know, how, how, how will they? You know they'll try. But the Bible says the whole world is struck with terror. Because for three and a half days, they're dead in the street. Whatever killed them, they know they're dead. And they leave them there to mock and ridicule and rejoice over their death. And all of a sudden, they stir and they stand and they rise. 
and they disappear. Okay. Now, this person wanted to know, who are they? Who are the two witnesses? Well, most believe, and I do believe this, that it's, it's Moses and Elijah sent again to the earth. I think they're the strongest possibilities for the two witnesses, and here's why. The witnesses' power to turn water into blood. Who's that sound like? Turn water into blood? Who's it sound like? Come on. Moses. And that's what Moses was known for. And calling down plagues and whatnot. That's something else they do. And then secondly, their power to destroy people with fire. Who called fire out of heaven? Elijah. So they're highly suspect here. It's got to be, I'm, I'm just thinking it's Moses and Elijah. Most commentators agree. Also giving strength to this view is the fact that Moses and Elijah appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember that? With Peter, James, and John there. And all of a sudden, Jesus lights up like a Christmas bulb, like a, like a burning sun. And suddenly standing next to him is Moses representing the law. <clears throat> excuse me. Representing the law. And Elijah representing the prophets. So the law and the prophets. And Jesus was the fulfillment of both. So it will be, I think, Moses and Elijah come back to earth, testifying to the earth. And that's who I think the two witnesses are. That's the best guess. And yes, I believe the rapture of the church has happened prior to this event because the two witnesses ministered during the great tribulation. And I believe the church will go out before the great tribulation because we have not been called unto wrath. We have not been called to wrath. And the great tribulation is pure, undistilled wrath. So I believe we're going out, and then, boy, the devil swoops in in a way that nobody wants to experience. Amen? Can we just thank the Lord that soon and very soon we're going to see the king? Amen? (laughs) Amen. Thank you, Jesus. That was a good question, wasn't it? Now, let me do another one. I believe that Israel is a sort of a countdown clock we can biblically look at in reference to end times events. With everything happening between Israel, Russia, Syria, Iran, etc., it certainly looks as though the stage is being definitively set for Ezekiel 38 to take place soon. I'm going to tell you about what Ezekiel 38 is in a moment, so don't get lost. Then this person says, my question is, does this battle take place during... The tribulation period. All right, let me back up and tell you about Ezekiel 38 in a real brief nutshell. A, Ezekiel 38's prophecy has never happened in any historical time period ever. It is an unfulfilled prophecy, Ezekiel 38. So what is the prophecy? Ezekiel 38, Ezekiel predicts an end-time coalition of six nations that will unite to attack Israel in the last days. And they're named, and I gave you the names. Now I'll give you the Bible name, then I'll give you what that landmass is now, okay? So when I read Magog, then I'm going to tell you what the landmass of Magog was then and what it is now. So Magog is modern-day Russia. Persia is modern-day Iran. Kush, modern-day Ethiopia. Put is modern-day Libya. Gomer is modern-day Eastern Europe. And Beth Togarma is modern-day Turkey. Is it amazing that Ezekiel could nail this? Ezekiel prophesies that these nations, now watch this now, these six nations will, will come together in a coalition. Ezekiel says they will come together with the sole intent of wiping Israel off the map. He says, you will come down like a storm covering the land like a cloud. This is a massive multinational attack against the tiny landmass of Israel. And Ezekiel makes real sure we understand when it happens. He said, this will take place, quote, in the latter years. And then he says of those who are going to attack Israel, you will come into the land of those brought back from the sword. 
and gathered from many people on the mountains of Israel, which had long been desolate. They were brought out of the nations, and now all of them dwell safely. Word of God just blows me away. Because first of all, it's going to be in the latter years. I already told you, Ezekiel 38, this prophecy has never been fulfilled. Nothing like this has ever happened in history. All right, now. But also, he says, you're going to attack a land who for a long time was desolate. Well, how long was Israel desolate? How long were the Jewish people desolate? 20 centuries. They were dispersed in 70 A.D., when the Romans invaded Jerusalem, which I'm talking about some tonight. But they were dispersed in 70 AD to the four corners of the world, and they never came back together as a nation till 20 centuries later in 1948. And here's Ezekiel prophesying that when these six nations attack Israel, it's going to be a land brought back together, regathered, brought out of the nations, and now they dwell safely. Well, how in the world they dwell safely? Israel in dwelling safely right now, they're armed to the teeth or they're, or they're taken out. Because at the beginning of the Great Tribulation, Antichrist will sign a peace treaty. And that peace treaty will lead them to believe they are completely and totally safe. And they'll become a land of unwalled villages. So Ezekiel says, it'll be in the last days. And Israel will have experienced or return the Jewish people to their homeland. And this has already happened. May 14th, 1948, one of the great prophetic fulfillments of our time. I think the greatest one. When Israel became a nation again in one day. That was an incredible fulfillment of Bible prophecy. May 14th, 1948. You should always remember that. Because the word of God came to pass in a spectacular way. Now, let's talk more about this. It seems that this war, the Ezekiel War, could serve as the fuse to Armageddon. Now, it is distinctly not Armageddon because the players are different, the location of the battle is different, and the outcome is different. But many commentators believe, and I think it's a real good, solid point, that it could very well be that Ezekiel's war, this, this attack of six nations on Israel, is the opening event of the Great Tribulation. When Russia attacks with this coalition of enemy nations, it could signify that the first angel who blows the first trumpet of the trumpet judgments in Revelation has sounded. Now, I have a reason for saying that. Let me read Revelations 8, 7. Here's the first angel sounding the first of the seven trumpet judgments. And here's how it's described. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all green grass was burned up, an ecological disaster. Now, the hail and the fire mingled with blood and the ecological destruction of a third of the planet is identical to what Ezekiel describes in 38 and 39. He describes the same thing. Fire falling. Uh, uh, men, Zechariah says, men will be standing on their feet and while they stand on their feet, their eyes will be burned out of their sockets and their tongue out of their mouth while they stand before they hit the ground. That's what it says. So the reason I think it could be, I'm not saying it is, but it could be that this is the first trumpet blown because both descriptions of Ezekiel and John's in the Revelation are identical. It's interesting to note that each of the six nations that Ezekiel mentioned 600 years before Jesus Christ was born but 2,700 years ago, from our vantage point, are alive and well today. What are the odds you could do that? That 2,700 years ago, you could call out that there were going to be nations, Russia, Iran, Ethiopia, Libya, Eastern Europe, and modern-day Turkey. Impossible, unless God does it. Impossible, unless it's from God. 
who knows the end from the beginning, who never says oops and never says, well, I'll be. Now, not only that, but all of them except Russia are virulently anti-Semitic, anti-Israel, pro-Islamic, and they long for the destruction of Israel. This coalition of nations, when they come down and take Israel off the map, how many times have we heard in our lifetime people of the Islamic persuasion say, I I want to take them off the map. I'm going to take them off the map. I'm going to wipe them off the map. I don't want to just take over. I want to wipe them off the map. They're going to try it. And it's not going to go well for them. Everybody say, turn to your neighbor and say, heavy stuff. Heavy stuff. But but can we just say, I want you to say this with me. Thank God. Let's lift our hands. Thank God. God has everything under control. And I'm going out. Before all this comes in. Now give him praise tonight. Amen. 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 Now here's another question. I've heard many ideas on the following passage. And then the passage is quoting Jesus. And this is a great passage. But when you see the abomination of desolation standing where it should not be, let the reader understand Then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. The one who is on the housetop must not go down or go in to get anything out of his house. And the one who is in the field must not turn back to get his coat. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. This is Jesus talking now. But pray that it may not happen in the winter because it's hard to run when you're great with child and it's hard to run in the freezing cold. That's what he means. For those days will be a time of tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the creation which God created until now and never will. Unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Now keep those verses in mind. And this person goes on to ask, quote, Some people say parts of Jesus' prediction refer to the destruction of the first temple and the Masada slaughter, while some speak to the time of Antichrist. What do you say? All right, let me answer it. Let's keep in mind these are the words of Jesus in answer to the disciples' question. Jesus had, and the disciples had come out of the temple. He'd been in the temple for the very last time before he was going to be betrayed and crucified. So he's exiting the temple for the last time. And the disciples are going, wow, did you look at that architecture? Look at that incredible building. Look at those stones. Look at the gold. Look at the beauty of this place. It is just a marvel. And Jesus said, you know what? The day is going to come when not one stone is left standing upon another. What? It blew them away. So they said, Lord, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your return? Well, What we just read is part of Jesus' answer, okay? Now, this person wanted to know particularly about the abomination of desolation. Did it happen in the first temple that Jesus said was going to come down, and we know that it came down in 70 A.D.? Or is he talking about one in the future, in the last days? That temple, and an abomination of desolation happening in that temple, all right? Let me answer it. Now, the abomination of desolation, the first time we hear of it is from Daniel. Daniel says it three times in Daniel's chapters 9 through 11. Abomination of desolation, abomination of desolation, abomination of desolation. Three times. The phrase first comes from Daniel. The word abomination, just so you'll know, in the Hebrew language, referred to a great and a terrible and an awful sin commonly worthy of death, and where God's covenants have been trampled on. In other words, it's a particularly egregious, grieving, uh, judgment-inducing sin, an abomination. But then Daniel made a phrase, the abomination of desolation, or the abomination that brings desolation. That refers directly to his prophecies, Daniel's prophecies, that somebody would defile the holy place in the temple. 
Such an act would trigger God's judgment, bringing desolation. Now remember, folks, before you and I were the temple of the Holy Spirit in the new covenant, God had Solomon build a temple. That one was torn down. Then the temple was rebuilt. And then the temple that they were looking at in Jesus' time had been under renovation and reconstruction under Herod for a long, long time. But the the temple had the outer court, the inner court, and then the holy of holies. The abomination of desolation has to do with something happening in that inner sanctum called the holy of holies, where you got to go beyond the curtain, beyond the curtain where no man dared to go except the high priest, go beyond that curtain, make the sacrifice for the people, and get out of there because the Shekinah glory of God rested there. Daniel is saying something horrible is going to happen in that holy place. And when it happens, it's going to be the abomination that makes desolate. Now, historically, we know that a man named Antiochus Epiphanes was the first to fulfill Daniel's prediction. Antiochus was a king in Palestine in the years of 175 to 64 BC. So he wasn't long before the birth of Christ. And he hated the Jewish people. Antiochus Epiphanes despised the Jewish people and despised their God and despised their religion because he wanted to be worshipped. You know, right? Megalomaniac. And he hated the Jewish people and their religion and their God so badly that he invaded the temple and sacrificed a pig on the altar and erected a statue of Zeus, a mythological god in the Holy of Holies. And that was an abomination of desolation. But catch this now, follow me. This happened before Jesus predicted of another abomination of desolation. Because when Jesus talked about the abomination of desolation that we just read out of Matthew and then also in Mark, this one with Antiochus Epiphanes had already happened. So he's, he's pointing down the tunnel of time to another one that will happen. Now, I personally believe, you can chew the meat and spit out the bones, but I believe that the immediate fulfillment of Jesus' prediction took place about 37 years after he made it in 70 A.D., when the Romans surrounded Jerusalem in the Jewish war with the Romans, started in 66 A.D., and they finally invaded Jerusalem. And when they did, it was terrible. Remember what Jesus said? It's going to be a tribulation unlike the world has ever seen. One million Jews were slaughtered. They were there for the Passover. And they were slaughtered. One million Jews slaughtered. They took 95,000 prisoners to serve as slaves in Rome. The whole city of Jerusalem was decimated. And the temple was desecrated. When they destroyed the city, the commander of the Roman army entered the temple. Now, keep in mind, the Romans always carried with them idolatrous images of the emperor, Caesar, and of Zeus. So Jesus had specified, when you see the abomination that makes desolate, doing what, everybody? Standing. So this has to be a person standing in the holy place. So it would seem that when the commander stood there in the holy place, when the whole city had been destroyed, and he's standing there with idolatrous artifacts on his person, this was a partial fulfillment of Jesus' prediction. It was an abomination that makes desolate. But I believe his prediction is two-pronged, and the last fulfillment is yet to happen. Let me show you why I believe it. There will be one more abomination of desolation in the days of the Antichrist. For Daniel predicted that another person who would commit the abomination of desolation would make a peace treaty, a seven-year peace treaty with Israel, and that's why they would believe they were safe and could become a land of unwalled villages, and Rome never made such a peace treaty with the Jews. It never happened. So there has to be another fulfillment because Jesus said that that had to be the context. And so did Daniel. Daniel said there will be a peace treaty, then the abomination of desolation, and Jesus said it. So 
Antichrist will come into power suddenly, seemingly overnight. He'll be a master orator. He'll be, a, he'll be magnetic, charismatic, persuasive, likable, lovable, attractive, a winner talking to crowds. And he will take he, his, his coup de, his, his, his major accomplishment that brings him before the eyes of the world. He will march into Jerusalem. He will go into Jerusalem and he will barter that peace treaty that every president in my lifetime has tried to do and has failed. He will barter that peace treaty and he will successfully do it. And everybody will go, Oh my soul, look at this guy. He's our man, Stan. He, he has stopped this terrible Middle Eastern conflict and he's going to receive accolades and he's going to step into power. And for three and a half years, he's going to allow the Jews to reinstate their former types of worship, animal sacrifice and so on and so forth in a rebuilt temple. And they'll think everything is fine and fine. We, we've finally got world peace and, and thank God for our wonderful, wonderful Savior. But three and a half years in, He'll walk in to the temple, he'll go into the Holy of Holies, and he'll declare himself to be God. That's what the Bible prophesies. And he commits the abomination that makes desolate. And when he does that, everything changes. The Jews come under intense, terrible, fervent persecution. And the world looks like it's going to completely implode and cease to exist if something doesn't happen. And thank God, something will happen. Because at the end of it, when the War of Armageddon is taking place and, and the whole world is in battle and, and you got nuclear things in play and all of that, suddenly there's going to be someone appear in the sky. And you may say, come on, Jeff, you don't really believe that. You better know I believe that. If Jesus came once, he can come again and he will come again. And he will stop the terrible war of Armageddon. And he'll take the Antichrist, he'll take the beast, and hurl them into hell and establish his kingdom, the kingdom of which there will be no end. See, if you're a Christian, you're on the winning team, I guarantee you. You may feel like you get beat up sometimes. It may look like you're on the losing side of things sometimes. Sometimes you've got really bad days and it seems like the devil's all over you. But let me tell you something, he's all over you because he knows he's already lost and, and my Jesus, your Jesus, our Jesus, the Bible Jesus is coming back again and he's not going, listen, the world as we know it will not end at the hand of men. It will not end at the hand of the devil. It will end at the feet that have holes in them. That'll be the final fulfillment of Jesus' prediction regarding the abomination of desolation. I got one more question. Here I go. Y'all ready for one more? Are you ready? You want me to keep preaching on that, don't you? Okay. What is the gap theory? How many of you have heard of the gap theory? Better, how many have never heard of the gap theory? Whoa, okay. All right. Well, let me tell you about the gap theory. And why it matters. And then we're done. The gap theory is the view that God created a fully functional earth. You know what? It's 8-11. I'm afraid I don't have time. I don't want to keep you guys late. Are you okay? All right. One, this is it. I promise. The gap theory is the view that God created a fully functional earth with all animals, but watch this now, including the dinosaurs and other creatures we know only from the fossil record. Triceratops, Brontosaurus, Tyrannosaurus, Allosaurus, Stegosaurus. I love the sauruses. I I loved them when I was a kid. I studied them. Now, then the theory goes, careful, now watch this. The theory, the gap theory goes, something happened to destroy the earth completely between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2, hence the gap. Now, let me elaborate. Let's read those two verses. Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. How many agree with that? All right. Now, verse 2, now the earth was formless and empty or without form and void. 
Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Now, keeping those two verses in mind, the event that the proponents of the gap theory claim happened between the two verses, one and two, was probably the fall of Satan to earth. So the planet, when Satan was judged, came under God's judgment. Remember, Jesus said, I saw Satan fall like heaven, from, like lightning from heaven. We know he rebelled against God, and we know he was cast down to earth as a disembodied spirit. And everything on earth was destroyed when Satan was judged by God and cast to the earth, leaving it, as verse 2 describes it, without form and void. At this point, according to the gap theory, God started all over again, recreating the earth in its paradise form as described in Genesis. But the time, now watch, here's the gap theory. The time that passed between verses 1 and 2 was a gap of millions of years. Verse 1, God created the heavens and the earth. Then Satan messed up. Satan's cast down to earth. God judged the whole thing because of what Satan did. Everything was wiped out. Everything was killed like Noah's flood kind of. And it was all wiped out. And that's why in verse 2, we find the earth without form and void. And they say that explains. This is how the gap theorists account for the earth being hundreds of millions of years old. Because it all happened between 1 and 2. Long time before God decided to rev things up again. It's also their way of explaining the sudden disappearance of the dinosaurs. When did it happen? It had, the dinosaurs were stomping around in verse 1 after he created the heavens and the earth. They were wiped out in between verses 1 and 2 when Satan fell. And that's how you explain their fossils. And that's how you explain their sudden disappearance. They were wiped out when Satan was judged. And that's how they explain the millions of years that scientists tell us the earth is that old. You know, the earth is millions, billions, trillions of years old, they say. You know, way, way, millions and tens of millions of years old. They say, that's true. They, the gap theorists say, that's true. Because between one and two, God let millions of years go by before he came in with verse 2 and restarted when the church earth was without form and void. Are y'all following me? There's a problem with it and I'll close. There's a lot of problems with the gap theory. The problem with the gap theory is first, it requires that creation suffered death and destruction before Adam's fall when Satan was judged. But the Bible says it was after Adam's fall that the creation suffered. You with me? Paul writes, after talking about all the negative effects of the fall of man, Paul writes, for all creation is waiting patiently. This is Romans um, 8, 19. For all creation is waiting patiently and hopefully for that future day when God will resurrect his children. Notice he says all creation, not just you and me. For on that day, the results of the fall, thorns and thistles and sin and death, and decay, the things that overcame the world against its will at God's command, and the context here is when man fell, will all disappear, and the world around us will share in the glorious freedom from sin which God's children enjoy. For we know that even the things of nature, animals, plants, suffer in sickness and death as they await this great event. What's the event? The taking away of the church, the revealing of the sons of God, the return of Christ who sets in a brand new kingdom where the lion will lay down with the lamb and so on and so forth. So the gap theory in, requires that you believe the creation suffered before Adam, but it didn't. It was after Adam. Now, the second problem with the gap theory is the idea that if something important had occurred between Genesis 1-1 and 1-2, wouldn't God have told us about it? Instead of just leaving this big blank, 
Oh, yeah, I, not to mention the, the whole thing languished for millions of years till I decided to recreate the whole mess. Is that your God in mind? Is that the Bible? Isn't it make more, doesn't it make more sense that Genesis 1 is there to explain to us the creation and the way it all went down and God didn't leave some big blank space? Also, Genesis 1.31 says God declared his creation to be very good. A statement that's difficult to square with the theory that evil already existed because of Satan's fall. If evil is already walking around and has already done incredible millions of years, I mean, taken God millions of years off his original plan, how could he have called that whole thing good? It was already messed up, if the gap theorists are right. So because of those things, I, that's the gap theory. How many of you understand the gap theory now? Say Genesis 1, 1 and 1, 2. Come on. That's when the gap supposedly happened. Everybody say with me, there was no gap. Say God's not a God of gaps. Say he's not a gappy God. No. Now the last question, what is the land of Nod? Dead churches on Sunday morning. Let's stand. <laughs> You know, the land of Nod. (laughs) Dead churches on Sunday morning. (laughs) I thought that was pretty good. Here's the real answer. I have a real answer. Just take a second. Uh, Nod is the Hebrew root of the verb to wander. It's where God exiled Cain after he murdered Abel. So to dwell in the land of Nod is usually taken to mean that one takes up a wandering life. And I believe it can also have a spiritual application that until you're saved, you're essentially in the land of Nod. You're wandering, lost, until Christ comes into your life. So how many of you are glad to be delivered from Nod? Amen.